Andrew Ray from Dualistic Unity. Thank you so much for joining us on the Principal Podcast today. Super excited to have this conversation given that I've been devouring your content for the last couple of weeks here. Um, wanted to give a quick shout out to Dr. Susan Hannon who put us in touch in the first place. Um, guys, please feel free to introduce Dualistic Unity. Um, so Dualistic Unity is, is Ray and my podcast. Uh, the name kind of speaks for itself. It's short, <laughs> short answer that isn't always super well received. It's based on the recognition that I am God. And what comes with that is, is a lot of depth, but dualistic unity essentially refers to the reality of unity that is experienced dualistic, dualistically. And so we're in this experience that perceptibly seems divided while the reality is unity. So as long as you can recognize that it is all one thing, that's all you ever have to do. And then beyond that, just enjoy the experience, utilize the labels for convenience sake while not taking them too, too seriously and keep moving forward one step at a time. That was excellently said. In fact, I, I think you could go so far as to say that it's not our podcast at all, because the entire idea that there is a me and an Andrew and a you and the listener is just perception. It's just the fact that we have the experience of being an individual awareness. And so we tend to perceive everybody else who seems separate from us as being a separate awareness as well. And so within the podcast, we talk about how division is just a perception that in the same way that your heart isn't aware of what your spleen is doing, but they are still part of the same body. You and I are different parts of the same body. We form and we have different functions, but we are ultimately the same awareness, extensions of the same life, extensions of the same reality or God or however you'd like to call it. And so that's very much what dualistic unity is all about, is that although we experience things as divided, it's just the experience. It's not the reality. The reality is unity. That's beautifully said. Um, we caught up a little bit before the episode started, but if you guys could, what led you down this path? And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners can, you know, as evidenced by the traction that your podcast has gotten for, for such a short amount of time, I'm sure that a lot of listeners can resonate with a lot of the concepts that you're talking about. A lot of these things are people that are face that they're facing in their own lives. Um, so what kind of led you down this path of exploring your, your unity and, and the power within you, these sorts of things? Um, yeah, so this is, this even, <laughs> it's funny cause like every answer is like a little bit tongue in cheek. Cause when I even say something like, you know, this led to this, there was something that led to this or, or that or this or that beforehand. So even the idea of divided moments is something we can get into on here. So there's some moments that I can think back on and be like, oh, this, you know, I woke up this day and I had this very stark experience, which I can go into, but everything that happened leading up to that led to that. And everything since then has been led to from that. So even the idea of, of separate moments is totally conceptual. So mm -hmm. what led me to here now? Well, everything that's ever happened in all of eternity, essentially, if you want to go back far enough. But 
uh, to keep things simpler for now, um, my, uh, my sort of waking up experience. Um, so like growing up just real quick, I, I dealt with a lot of social anxiety, cared a lot about what people thought of me, always, you know, worried about the future, rarely was like, felt like I was in the moment, didn't even recognize what the present moment was. Um, and sure. so about coming up on almost exactly a year ago, uh, I was going through just a tough week and I was, I was trying to grab onto all of these, I call them now like identity based practices, like gratitude, positivity, affirmations, all these things that sort of like have to do with the idea of Andrew and none of it was working. And it, it had always worked for years. It got me through all different sorts of things. And, and it got to a point where like it, it wasn't, and it lasted like six days, which it had never that those types of feelings had never lasted that long for me, just like worry, anxiety, fear of future things. And so one day I was walking and, and I was listening to an audio book and there was a part where it said, you know, the past doesn't actually exist or you don't have a past. And it was something I had recognized many times, but it hit me in a different way. And I was able to imagine for a second that I, I actually didn't have a past that I literally had no past. And I was just aware of what I was experiencing. I was walking through New York. I was just aware of my environment, aware of this body that I seem to be more proximally my environment. And it was like an entire weight had been lifted off of me because everything I was worrying about were things that happened in the past that I was afraid of happening again in the future. And without that past and without that, all of those ideas that I was clinging to, there wasn't anything to fear in the future. And I went a little bit deeper and recognized that the entire idea of Andrew was solely based on, on the past. Like everything about quote unquote Andrew is all the experiences I've had, all of the accomplishments I've had, all of the trauma I've been through. So as I let go of that idea of the past, I was able to let go of that idea of Andrew. And I was like, oh, all right, well, like if I'm just aware right now, then maybe I'm not Andrew. Maybe there's like a little gap between the idea of Andrew and what I actually am. And that completely changed my perspective of everything. I started making videos about like just saying over and over, like, you are not what you think you are. You are not what you think you are. Like, I'm not Andrew. I'm the awareness of Andrew. And that was still kind of getting caught on a little bit of an egotistical level, a little bit of a divided separate level, thinking I'm just the awareness of Andrew as opposed to the awareness of existence itself of everything, because beyond the confines of the idea of Andrew, there are no confines to what I am. And so, you know, eventually through more and more questioning and getting in touch with Ray, I, I was able to kind of work through all of that um, to get to, you know, some of the recognitions I have now, but that was sort of the more impactful experience of, of mine, but uh, I'll, I'll pass it off to Ray for his experience. Oh, I was far more pigheaded about it. I, I went for years just beating my head against rock bottom for sure. Uh, I, I tried, I think, every avenue of the ego that I, I could. I, I tried being everyone that I thought society wanted me to be or everyone that I thought everybody would want me to be. Um, never, ever finding myself happy, even when I was surrounded by people who thought they liked me, right? Because you would always have that realization that they don't really like me because I'm not really being me. I'm being what I want them, but what I think they want me mm -hmm. to be. And so mm -hmm. who do they really like? And and so you follow that for long enough and you end up at the bottom of this deep, deep dark hole, unable to get out because you don't know who to be. And the idea of just being yourself, which you, you tie it to your narrative. And for me, 
my narrative was was not having any family or structure or support network. And so I always identified with that as being uh, reflective of my lack of value. And so when I wasn't trying to be something, I was just left being nothing was basically how I felt. And I, I rode that all the way pretty much to the end, to the, to the point where it almost killed me. I ended up be, becoming suicidal. I self-admitted to a psych ward. I did all of that. And after realizing I got to be able to do something with this, like, obviously, I've been through all of this stuff. I got I have to be able to, to learn something. There has to be more. Sure. Um, one day, it finally just hit me that I was willingly carrying this fiction of myself with me. And no matter what I was doing, I was always reaching for it. No matter how I felt, I was like, oh, this will make me feel better. And it never did, but it never dawned on me that it never did. And so all of a sudden, it, I realized I don't have to live relative to the rest of the world that I assume is looking at me in a certain way. In fact, I don't even know what they think of me. And that made me laugh. And then I just kept laughing. And I've been pretty much laughing ever since. It's just the idea of being free, or rather the reality of being free of a prison that we habitually create simply because mm -hmm. we think it's giving us certainty. Sure. So before I, I ask this, my follow-up question here, Andrew, do you remember the name of that audiobook that prompted that thought in your mind in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of Eckhart Tolle's, uh, one of his shorter ones is called stillness speaks. I think it's only if, like 15 or 16 chapters and they're kind of shorter. Um, but yeah, that was, that was it. Very interesting. Okay. Um, do, do you, do you guys feel like you're almost viewing yourselves from a third person's point of view when you're having these reflections and having these thoughts in your mind about separating your perception of yourself from who you are, from who your identity is? Does that make sense? It makes sense to me in, in, in the way that I, I guess it's not necessarily I'm looking at it from a third person, person point of view because I'm still me. It, it's that the me that I thought I was, wasn't. And that was the problem. That was the only problem was that I kept referring to myself as the idea of myself, which is exactly what Andrew was saying in terms of that is always of the past. And worse, it's not even of the past. It's our, of our assumptions of the past. It's our perception of the past that we attach to, right? And so as soon as we do that, now we're stuck. Again, we're, we're within this narrow corridor, whereas before we had unlimited potential to change. Now we can only change within what we see as possible, and that's always dictated by what came before or what we perceive to have come before. Mm -hmm. So it was really just about realizing, it really is just about realizing that no matter what I think of myself, I'm wrong. The reality of me is the reality that's here now. And that can't be condensed into a thought. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to add to that, I think the, any ideas that we cling to, to try and define ourselves are inherently limiting because at the end of the day, we are infinite potential in every single moment. And the only thing that limits that is the ideas that we cling to. And, you know, so for, for an example, someone, has in the past, you know, maybe they tried a sport, they tried soccer a couple times and they didn't do so great. So now they have this idea that they're bad at soccer, but mm -hmm. the reality is that, that they're not because they just have this idea. And maybe say, for example, they, <laughs> they were like 10 years old and they were playing against, you know, a team that was full of future, like the greatest 
soccer players of all time. You know, maybe that was a hypothetical situation. So now that all of a sudden they have this idea because they got absolutely smacked by them, but they could go on to be like an incredible college soccer player. But now they have this idea now that they, they're trying to define themselves and they define themselves as a bad soccer player. But the reality is that, you know, as Ray just said, you're never what you think you are. So, but as long as you cling to that, it is inherently limiting. And so if you're able to, in every single moment, question those ideas that you cling to and, and question that idea that maybe you think you're a bad soccer player, you can realize that, oh, maybe you're not. And, and so then the next game, maybe you're playing someone not as good, but now all of a sudden you have this idea that you're a bad soccer player. And so you're not confident at all going into the game and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm really bad. You know, this isn't going to go well at all. And then that's how it manifests because you're always in every single moment manifesting mm -hmm. your reality. So, mm -hmm. but as you let go of it, you know, if, if you go into it, you know, blank slate and you're like, I don't know, I don't know what I am. I don't know if I'm good or bad at soccer. Let's find mm -hmm. out. And then you go into that in the same mentality that you went into the first game and all of a sudden you do amazing. You're like, oh, okay. So maybe like, I was just really good but that's kind of how our reality goes and and it's we go into everything having this idea of what we think we are and what we can and can't do and we're good and bad at and you know what we can and can't accomplish because of everything that's happened leading up to right now but as you let go of that you become free and, and you recognize your infinite potential so anytime an idea of myself comes up like I'm this or that I just I just question it and I remember that I don't know guys this is really really, really powerful stuff because as you mentioned, our, our limiting beliefs are shaped by one or two bad experiences that might not have gone our way for a variety of factors. But when we reflect on those things, we perceive ourselves to be inferior or, or, or bad at those things because of the outcome, right? When like, it could have been a, it could have been a million things that made you play horribly at soccer that day, right? But now you think that you're just a bad soccer player. You think you're unathletic. You think you can never um, advance past the the shitty person that showed up on the soccer field that day, right? So, my question to you guys is: Is there a way that you can? Because I think so many people can relate to these ideas of of feeling trapped and like prisoners to their limiting beliefs that they develop because of a, a couple bad experiences here or there. Is there a way that you can conclusively say, if you follow these steps, you can stop being so cerebral and stop overthinking about some of the difficult um, obstacles that you face that are attaching your reality, your, your perception of yourself to these limiting beliefs? I would say yes and no. I would say that it depends on the degree that you are committed to that illusion, to how many layers are, are piled up on top of who you really are, how many layers of ego or assumption you rely on for that sense of certainty, because it's cumulative. It took our entire life to build this idea of who we are. We've literally formed synapses around this identity that we've held onto. And so at first, it's very difficult. It's like trying to practice meditation for the first time. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, I'll just sit down quietly. And then all of a sudden you just hear it all. And you go, oh, that's not quiet, right? How are all these people looking so peaceful? And, and you can walk away and you can give up or you can keep doing it, right? And then all of a sudden you'll start to see that each time you meditate, it's cumulative. 
again, just like your identity is cumulative, it starts to wear away at those layers, it starts to pick them apart. And then all of a sudden, you can see more insights underneath it. And so, yes, there are certain practices that will help you pick away at those layers, like um, focusing on, on what is real breathing, focusing on your breath, uh, focusing on, on the sound of the wind or the feeling of your skin or anything like that, something that doesn't involve cognition or concepts something that is sensory um, that will often help you get out of your thoughts there's a good exercise that they teach in counseling I, I don't remember exactly what it is but it's like identify three things that you can see five things that you can smell seven things that that you can taste or, or, or seven things that you can touch and the whole exercise is just to basically get you out of the narrative which is habitual right and so you if you apply those at first it may not feel like you're making much progress at first you might end up with 10 seconds of, of uh, kind of a, a break from your inner narration, but that is a success. And the whole point is to keep going. Within a year, you'll see yourself way beyond where you ever thought you could be. And then 10 years down the road, you'll wonder what just happened. All of a sudden, my life is entirely different than I ever thought that it could possibly be. But it does start with those tiny steps, but it's just over and over and over again. It's like, you're never there. You're always picking apart your, your tendency to try and build invisible walls. And Andrew, I want to give you a chance to chime in here, but before I do that, I, I do want to circle back to something that Ray just said, um, this idea of identity, right? This whole idea of identity is crafted by the previous experiences that we have and that they, they just keep laying, layering on top of one another, right? And over time, we start to believe that's who we are. Ray, can you give us kind of, or either of you really, could you give us kind of an understanding of what the identity is and how that attaches to ourselves. Absolutely. Andrew, if you don't mind, I'm just uh, going to go off a little bit here about uh, Jane Lovinger and, and ego development. So back in the fifties, there was a developmental psychologist, Jane Lovinger, and she was talking about how the ego develops over time because the ego isn't a thing. It's a strategy. It's something that we start to develop as a way of dealing with the reality of uncertainty. Who am I yeah. compared mm -hmm. to all of this? right? How do I fit in? What am I supposed to do? Where am I safe? And, and so that's where identity starts to form. I'm a parent, my daughter is 15. So I've been through quite a few of the stages so far. And at each and every point, there is this evolution into who we think we are, but there's also this temptation to attach to it as truth. And this is something I've witnessed in my daughter and I've witnessed in other kids. And I always caution her against believing any one thing about herself, whether it's positive or negative, because you can mm -hmm. always change. You can, and, and you don't want to compare yourself to others because they can always change. And so everything's always in, in flux, but we are not taught to do that. Our, our schooling system's not taught to do that. Our schooling system, it, it very much teaches us to identify, to find a group, to fit in, and then just kind of be a, a productive member of society, to be part of the group, which makes us think in terms of relativity and, and how we fit into everybody else's life. And so it's a natural thing to identify what we're supposed to do eventually. And, Le and Lovinger said this as we get to stage four and five and six of ego development is we start to question our ego. We start to question the idea of ourself as truth. That's what it gives us the ability to talk to other groups that are unlike us. But if we don't do that, then we always end up being more divided, which is where we end up with nationalism or religion, or half the institutions that we've learned to take as, as being, you know, unquestionable, just part of human nature. Well, they were never really part of human nature. It's just that we got comfortable and built a world around stage three and four of our ego development. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I would say that, like, along with that, everything in our society is reinforcing to us our idea of ourselves, and and that it's a good thing. Even the idea, a lot of people say that that the most important thing you can ever do in life is know yourself or figure out who you are. And that is impossible, I would argue. It's it's actually impossible and detrimental and reinforces that idea of yourself and the idea that what you think you are is what you are and you are your name, you are your story, you are your strengths and weaknesses, you are your opinions. All of it is reinforced by these things that you should know yourself because we crave certainty in a world that is inherently uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen in two seconds. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week, but we think that we can be certain about things, but it's never certainty. It's always a false sense of certainty. So everything in our society is reinforcing this idea. And when it comes to the idea of knowing yourself, even saying that, like, I know myself, there's the I and there's the myself. There's the I that knows and the myself that is known. So that, that implies two things. And um, I think I first heard this uh, in one of Eckhart Tolle's books. I think Power of Now, he talks about it a little bit, but it implies two. And that's basically the the mass state of psychosis that our society exists within, that, that there are two versions of us. There, There is that which experiences the moment and that idea that we bring into every moment with strengths and weaknesses and opinions. But if you can recognize that that idea that you cling to is never, ever, ever what you actually are, it's, it's never even a little bit of what you are. It's, it's, you're not that story. And so as you can just question that and let go of feeling a need to cling to that false sense of certainty, because it's never reality, like reality is always uncertain. So as you can let go of that and relax into that recognition that everything beyond this moment is entirely uncertain, everything you think about yourself is entirely uncertain, as you can practice that. And again, it, it doesn't happen necessarily overnight. It is a practice, but it does build on itself and it is cumulative. And And the more you do it, the easier it gets, the easier it gets, the more you do it. And it's it's this cycle of letting go. And as you let go, you become more and more free. For someone like me, that is so, and I'm sure that a lot of people can relate when they hear this, but that is so difficult to reconcile with our everyday reality because I feel like in our search for truth, we 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 crave and we do everything in our power to have this illusion of control when in reality, like you guys just alluded to, we have no control over any of it at all, right? Like the next two seconds are uncertain. I don't even know the, the next couple words that are, that's going to come out of my mouth, right? So that's really, really difficult for me to reconcile and and kind of, um, I almost don't even want to believe that we can't have control, right? And I don't know if, if you guys can um, can relate to that feeling, but like having to understand that the uncertainty is just part of the process is just so mind-boggling and like um, anxiety-inducing for somebody like me. And I'm sure that a lot of people can relate. So, so like, how do you get comfortable with this uncertainty? Because ultimately every decision that you make comes with some level of uncertainty, right? Like, I mean, you could be ordering DoorDash 
for dinner and the food could be horrible and give you a stomach ache or food poisoning or whatever, right? Like something even as trivial as, as ordering food to, I don't know, like moving to a new place, like all of these decisions that we make come with some level of uncertainty. So where do you find the comfort? Is it just letting go of this whole concept of, of, of control and this illusion of control that we're so programmed to having from the first day of elementary school until, you know, the, the last day when we finally retire at 65 or, or whatever we're told we're supposed to do. Yeah. So I think the sort of saving grace coming in here for those who do get freaked out about, about this is that while you don't have control ever, because control is always based on the outcome of a situation, like you could do the best job ever at whatever job you're doing and it could still turn out poorly or it could still not be well received by someone but what you do have is influence and influence only ever happens here and now it doesn't happen in the future because the idea of control is future based but as you let go more and more of that idea of having any sort of control it almost like sucks you back into the reality of your experience, which you do have influence over. And it's almost like as you cling more and more to that idea of control and look for a false sense of certainty, you're always, you're, you're not really in the moment. So you're not really actually having any influence over your experience. You're just hoping for control based on your preferences, based on what you think is the best case scenario. But as you let go of that need and you recognize that you don't actually know what the best case scenario is like you think for example going into a job that getting the job is the best case scenario that job might suck you might fucking hate that job for like a bunch of years so you're going into it super nervous because you don't have control of even if you do a great job you you have no control of whether they're actually going to like you so you start getting nervous and you're worried because you think the best case scenario is getting the job and the worst case scenario is not getting the job but what if I told you, what if I could tell you that actually not getting the job is going to be the best case scenario? And it's almost like, oh, wait, so you're saying that not getting the job is, is better than getting the job because the next job I apply for is actually going to be a job that changes my life and I actually really enjoy? It's like, could be. I don't know. And neither do you. And so it kind of puts your mind in like this pretzel. Like, well, what do I do? It's like, well, just relax. You know, prepare to the degree that you feel comfortable with. Go in, be yourself. Don't try to be something for them and see what happens. But worry is no longer a part of the equation because you don't know what the outcome will be. So there's a lot of different aspects of that. But I think if you can begin to make sort of start to make recognitions like that and the idea that you don't actually know what's best, you let go of the idea of feeling like you need to control because you don't know what that thing is going to lead to or what it, where it may take you or what the best case outcome is actually is Ray. before you chime in there um that was really fucking powerful um so i just want to repeat for everybody who's listening and honestly just for myself too you do not control the outcomes you only control your experience ray please go ahead that was perfectly said it, it's a lot like um so when you first learn to ride a bike you tend to be 
uh, a little bit concerned and anxious and it's because you're not as familiar with the experience and it's uncertain and you figure you can get hurt but you don't know how much you can get hurt because it's new and it's uncertain so there's all of these assumptions and as you learn to ride your bike the uncertainty doesn't go away it's still uncertain anything could still happen as you're riding your bike the difference is the faith in yourself the difference is you start to get more of an awareness of what what the uh, the worst possible scenario might be or what could possibly go wrong and it always comes back to you going right and i could do this or i could do this or i'm sure i'll figure it out and that's why you don't worry about the uncertainty anymore it's because you have faith in yourself mm -hmm. right but that comes from riding the bike and that's the problem is that often we're looking for that confidence to make a leap of faith but the confidence doesn't come until after the leap right we actually mm -hmm. have to be in the leap to figure out how to land yeah. and then we do it again right and that's what life is it's not the direction we take it's what we make with each and every step very much as andrew was just saying mm -hmm. again i i i'm gonna i'm just gonna do what i exactly what i just did there that needs to be repeated the confidence doesn't come until after you make the leap right because so so often we operate under the assumption that you have to have this false sense of confidence and you fake it until you make it which sure there might be some truth to but you do not have genuine confidence strong-willed confidence until after you do something right like your actions are what forge that confidence and it doesn't exist until after you've given it a real shot until your back's been against the wall and you don't have another option and you figure it out right exactly um, that's the whole point and this is something that andrew was saying earlier sorry to interrupt you but self-knowledge knowing yourself isn't conceptual that's where people tend to go go wrong that's the entire idea of self-esteem right if i have a high enough idea of myself that's going to get me through i'm just going to rely on that but self-knowledge is what happens when somebody throws a baseball at you and you catch it rather than panicking right and why do you catch it well because you know yourself you know how to react in the moment you know whether or not you're afraid or whether or not you're stressed out like it, it all comes down to your level of being it's not an idea of you it's just mm -hmm. how long you've been you authentically and that's that's really the only way to know yourself is to allow yourself to see it by jumping into things that that make you uncertain so you can see it but doesn't that involve like the, the jumping into uncertainty that you can't even predict doesn't that involve some level of self-esteem right because you have to have some level of belief that you will figure it out or am i missing something do you have you ever been certain I guess never fully, but I do have you've this. Never been certain, but you've always continued on, right? And that's the right. point. So you don't need to think about yourself to go forward. You just need to decide it's worth doing, mm -hmm. right? And then the priority comes from your will, right? We tend to think of it like, oh, I just need to boost myself up. But if you want it bad enough, if you decide that's important to me, you're going to go. Doesn't matter what you think about yourself. Right. That, that's why we take on things that seem too big for us. That's why we go to university to take on, you know, a medical degree or something like that. When we have no understanding of the body or anything else, we start at the very beginning and we tackle something that's huge because it's important to us. Yeah. We're not always going to feel confident in doing that. And that's the danger is that when we start thinking we need to, because I've tackled so many different giant challenges in my life. And I've heard that narration in my head telling me, you can't do this. You don't have the training for this. Other people could do this better than you and on and on and on. And my response was, that's an interesting habit. I'm just going to keep doing it. 
right? But you have to get out of the habit of thinking about yourself to be able to just exercise your will. Otherwise, you're just waiting for an excuse to exercise your will, or you're waiting for permission from a fictitious entity that's not there. So I'm, 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 I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm struggling with the reconciliation between not knowing who you are, but then also knowing what your values are, right? Based on what you just said, right? Where does that, how did, how did those things um, intertwine? So I think when you begin to let go of the idea of yourself, you get closer to the recognition of what you actually are. And, and as deep as that goes, it gets to a point where, you know, your existence experiencing itself and there are no longer labels to limit that. And the ideas that we cling to about ourselves are the things that limit us, are the things that make us think that we can't make that initial leap. So as we were saying before, this all, you know, this is all intertwined. We're talking about the same thing in, in different ways, basically. And as we let go of that idea of ourselves, there's nothing left to limit us from making that initial leap. And when you recognize that your value is unwavering, like what you are, it can't be, it can't, you can't increase your value or decrease your value, no matter what you do, no matter what you strive for. And it doesn't mean don't strive. It just means strive because you can, not because you have to, not because your value is based on what you accomplish or fail at. So when you recognize that you can go into something and realize that it doesn't matter how you do, and it doesn't matter how people perceive you for that, because you know that it doesn't change what you are deep down. So you can go into a situation and this is, you know, helpful for that. Cause that initial leap is one of the main things that holds people back. It's not like the process. Once they start, it's, it's that initial step of going from never having done it to, to doing it because odds are you're, you're not going to be very good at it to start. Like I look back at my old videos when I started posting content, <laughs> I can't even watch them. Like I cringe as like, I, but if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to be where I'm at now. Like you can't do the 10th video before you do the first, you can't do the hundredth before you do the 10th. You can't do the thousandth before you do the hundredth. And, but you know, the 10th is going to be better than the first hundredth, better than the 10th thousandth, better than hundredth, but you can't do that thousandth before you do the first. And if you can recognize that that idea of yourself is never the truth. And so there isn't anything to hold you back and, and your value is unwavering no matter what happens, like no matter what happens, no matter what you go into and fall flat on your face doing hundreds of times in a row, you're never a failure because that's only an idea. That's only a thought and you're never what you think you are. So as you can do that more and more and more, every time you do something, you learn something and it's all cumulative. And as long as you just keep moving forward and recognize then that what you are and, and that value is, is completely unwavering, it allows you to make that first step. And from there, you just keep moving forward one, one foot in front of the other. Um, honestly, I, I kind of went in a different direction uh, in, in terms of values. I was thinking more in, in terms of how does one how does one determine what's right and what's wrong? How does one determine what's cre uh, what's destructive and what's not to others and myself? If everything mm -hmm. is uncertain, if everything, if there's nothing right and there's nothing wrong and there's nothing good and there's nothing bad, 
what steers the ship? What's to stop me from just going in this direction or that direction where I am causing destructive and uh, destruction and harm? And I mean, that's often where we get the realm of religion, like the Ten Commandments and things like that. It's like, here's a rule or here's rules to follow so that you're not, you know, a totally bad person. But I think the problem, and, and, and again, apologies if I went on a tangent here, but I, I think the problem is that when we think about what are our values or, or what are our morals, we're thinking conceptually, again, rather than where those things come from. Like I was raised Roman Catholic. I was taught the Ten Commandments. I was taught to value compassion and sharing and openness and all of that. But it was conceptual. The people who were teaching me that weren't very compassionate to anybody who didn't agree with them and, and they weren't very open, right? But they would say they were because they acted that way. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't coming from a place where they could see me or the people they were talking to. They could just see how they thought they were supposed to act. They were always looking at themselves. And so as we let go of this idea of ourself, including morals, including values and all of that, we start to develop a sense of, sen of sensitivity. Like it's one thing to think, oh, well, my value is, is to you know, take care of people, to not hurt anybody. It's another thing to recognize that people hurt the way that you hurt, that there is no difference between the two experiences of suffering. Then all of a sudden it's not a, it's not a conceptual value. It's not a rule that you're following. It's coming from within. It's an action that feels right because it's coming from a state of clarity where you can actually see that person rather than just staring at yourself, trying to feel better. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the problem is that what we consider to be values and morals are really just self-defining coats that we put on and make us feel like we're a good person. But good isn't something you can be. Good is something you can do. Right. And so it, it has to come from that state of mind that is clear enough to empathize. And that's the only thing that guides us. Aside from that, we don't know. And, and the same is always true. We don't know what's going to cause harm or not, but we can know our intentions and we can know what our intentions might cause just through sensitivity and clarity. But otherwise, you can easily say that you're a moral person while treating other people terribly, right? And you just wear it as a coat. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ray, I actually, I, I actually don't think you went on a tangent. I think that was kind of just expanding on the same point that Andrew initially made. Um, it seems to me, and, and you guys tell me if I'm interpreting this incorrectly, but it seems to me like we've this idea of, of, of the self that we create that that's based on our perception of our reality, right? Like that is a very shallow understanding of our values because it's based on past experiences. It's based on reactions. It's based on circumstances other than what we actually had control over but when you start to peel these things back and you start to understand how they actually relate to your own life and they become kind of core values these are these are the real values that you associate your your being with exactly it comes from a state of authenticity rather than what we should do or what other people tell us we should be rather than societal conditioning it comes from a state of, of sanity Right? which is what we're really talking about is how often we go through our life and, and many people in, uh, in our community on Dualistic Unity and throughout my entire life have communicated it exactly this way. It feels like I'm coming out of a fog. And it's because the entire time we were just kind of going along according to the programming that we were taught to follow. Never once questioning, well, maybe I should question this. Maybe the, these people aren't actually in, in doing this for my best interest. Maybe it's for yeah. their best interest and they don't know any better either. There's nobody to vilify, but maybe we're just all really confused, right? Yeah. That's a very difficult thing to do. And as soon as you start doing that, though, things start to turn around, right? Because you start thinking for yourself and it is exactly that. There's, 
it's kind of like the, uh, there's this great story where a student went to his master in Kung Fu and said, master, how long will it take me to become a master? And the master said, 10 years. And the student went, how long will it take me if I study twice as hard? And the master said, 20 years. Right. And it's because you're trying to get somewhere. You're not in what you're doing. Right. When I was uh, teaching Kung Fu or when I was learning Kung Fu, I was having, I was struggling for a bit and my teacher would tell me the same thing over and over again, slow down, practice slower. Right. And it's because my attention was more in what I was doing. The movement became more fluid as a result of me being in it rather than trying to get somewhere. The same is true for life. It's very powerful. And, um, actually that's, that's funny because something that I kind of want to, wanted to unpack with both of you was how we can become more comfortable and more, um, sure of ourselves when we, when we're doing things that challenge conventional wisdom, right? Because these conventional beliefs are so drilled into our minds from such a young age that they are shaping our perception of reality and going against them just feels like it's almost like in one instance, and I can say this from personal experience, like in one instance, you feel like you're making the right decision. And in the next, it can feel like, what the hell am I doing? Like I'm going against everything I believe. And I say believe in air quotes for everybody who's just listening to this on the audio. But it seems like you really need to, based on based on some of the um, conversations that we've recently had, it just seems like you need to to really question every single thing and and that patience and doing things slower without being so focused on again tying back to what you initially said andrew being so focused on that outcome and just being more focused on being present and hyper aware of whatever it is that you're doing these are kind of the ways where you can develop surety of yourself yeah yeah it's absolutely i don't want to put it lightly that it, it isn't always easy. It is very turbulent going through these sorts of recognitions in the society we exist within. And I think a lot of times we can, it can lead to a lot of frustration and anger. And I think it really has to come down to the fact that you're doing it for yourself, for, for your life, that you are embodying these because you're free. And that's all it ever comes down to, because as long as you're doing it for someone else, you're doing it for a reason as opposed to just doing it. And as long as you're trying to change someone else, at the end of the day, like if we want to get deeper here, like you're still perceiving other people. So if you think you get it and you're trying to get other people to agree with you, you're not fully getting it because you're still perceiving other people and you're not seeing that it's all you and you're not seeing that you are the world not divided whatsoever so you know when you start to recognize these things a lot of times people will get this idea that they need to change the world or they were they were chosen from on high to be you know this this guru or this leader or they're a you know fucking star seed or some crazy shit like that and so they have this idea that they need to change the world and so they they try and get people to agree with them. They're trying to do all these things. And it typically only leads to more frustration for themselves because people don't listen to them and frustration for other people, which only pushes them further from this realm or this discussion that, you know, spirituality is an aspect of, but can a lot of times get very egotistical. And that's what pushes 
a lot of people out of it. So at the end of the day, like have the conversations and that's really all we do on dualist unity is just have this conversation for ourselves. We just happen to be recording it and post it publicly. You know, we're not doing it. We're not even doing it to help people. We're just doing it to have the conversation. And that's the point. The point is to do the thing that you're doing for the sake of doing it. And the more often you can do that, the freer you will become and the more you will embody this and the more people will start to pay attention because they're like, wait a second, that person's not doing it to, to bring themselves more value or to, to climb this social ladder or to get more recognition. Like that's kind of interesting. That's, I don't see that all the time. Like that's, that intrigues me. And then, and then they start paying attention, but it's because everyone else is trying to do it for a goal. But as long as you stick to doing it for the sake of doing it and find something you want to do for the sake of doing it and just do that thing, that's where the freedom lies. Cause if that's, you know, if you're able to live your life doing something like that, then there's nothing else you need outside of that. And your life is like a self-fulfilling thing that you're experiencing and there's nowhere else you'd want to be or be experiencing. So to bring it back to what I was saying before, it has to come back to doing it for yourself and not for anyone else. Mm -hmm. You're, you're doing it for yourself and you're not driven by the status games, the wealth games, the other games that people might assign to you doing your thing. And that's inherently what creates your freedom, right? Because you're just, you're truly just being authentic and asking the questions that you are having in your minds every single day and having a conversation with somebody who relates. And that's, that's the freedom, right? Because there's no, you're not bound to another party. You're not obligated to do anything for another party. You're just doing things because that's what's on your mind. Beautifully said. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I always find it kind of interesting that it does feel weird to question the status quo. It does feel weird to, to get out there and, and rock boats as it were, because it's almost like um, we're convinced that that's not what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is fit in. What you're supposed to do is make everybody happy with you. Right. And we don't realize that that's because the culture that we're raised by is still in that mentality that is afraid because it perceives everything as separate. Right. And so despite the fact that when you look at history and you look at the institutions that that we cherish are the result of questioning old institutions like democracy is the result of questioning monarchy right science is the result of questioning religion well those things didn't make people happy right people were very unhappy about those questions in that conversation but it's what changed the world mm-hmm. right the same is true individually Ad- adventurers explorers scientists things like this like these are all people who question the status quo and as a result, the world changes for the better. And so there's almost this, this necessity for us to reevaluate why we think fitting in is the right thing to do. Because the people who are telling us that aren't happy. When you talk to them, they're not happy. They're, they're feeling insecure. They're still trying to cope with all of this emotional stuff because they perceive the world as separate. And so you're going to have to accept that sometimes the only way to make positive change is to be perceived negatively. People aren't always going to see where you're coming from. People aren't always going to understand where you're coming from. It's like um, the three stages of truth, right? What is it? Uh, first, it's ridiculed. And then, uh, God, what is it? I wrote it down here. 
that first truth is ridiculed and then it's opposed and then it's accept, accepted as self-evident, right? And that's the point is that it goes through these stages. Ah, oh, you're, you're a fool, right? No, it couldn't be, couldn't be. It makes me angry. And then finally, well, of course, of course it's that way because everybody else says it's that way now. And so now I agree. It's, it, it, that's the whole point is that we forget that the majority is often lagging behind the rest of us as we're, as we're plunging forward into a new mentality. Comfort always wants to lag behind, right? We don't like pushing the envelope, but society and us individually benefit each and every time we do. And that's what Andrew was saying is that it has to be important to you. Like for me, it just, I didn't want to suffer anymore. I was just done. I was done feeling the way that I felt. And that meant being willing to let go of what everybody else might think of me if I did something different. And it was worth it because I was tired. I was tired of suffering. That was it for me. And Ray, you, you said something that was, that uh, reminded me of a conversation that I had with Paul, uh, Paul Miller last week. You guys can um, refer back to that episode. I'll link it in the show notes, but something that he said in his book was that with enough coping mechanisms, we, and I'm paraphrasing here, so don't crucify me if I get this wrong, but with enough coping mechanisms, we will deal with um, misery for long periods of time, right? And that really ties into what you were just saying. And it makes me even take that a step further and start thinking about how many people are really even having these conversations or, or thinking of these things, right? Because if they realized the root of their unhappiness, then they would start to question what is making them unhappy and what they can change in their, in their reality, right? In their perception of reality. But because we have so many coping mechanisms, like, you know, drinking, going out, Netflix, etc., like so many of these things, like we, we're using these as an obstacle for us to have these conversations with ourselves. So I, I wanted to call that out just because that's, that's just, it's funny how relatable that is, um, and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people can have are experiencing that in their own lives, and maybe they don't even know it, right? And it's like if you bring these, and of course, if you if you bring these sorts of topics and discussions and questions to those people who are who are doing these things on a daily basis, of course they're going to disagree with you, right? Because they haven't even a maybe they haven't even thought that far, or b maybe they haven't even recognized their own unhappiness, right? Well said. Well said. That's that is often the problem. It's uh, it's Plato's cave. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with Plato's cave, but basically, no. it's uh, Plato was a student of Socrates, sure, who was also uh, executed for asking questions, <laughs> as it were. But uh, Plato's cave is basically a story about um, let's say a race of human beings that only exist within this cave, and they're basically buried up to their neck, and they only face one wall, and that's their entire reality. And behind them are these other creatures with a light. And what they do is they take the light and they make shadows on the wall. And so the people who don't see the other creatures behind them assume that all of reality is just the shadows that they see on the wall. And so their whole culture becomes about who can identify the shadows, who can tell the best stories about how one shadow becomes another. And they, they all learn that this is what reality is. And they measure their value according to who can basically interpret the shadows the best, even though they're not real. So you take one of those people, and you remove him from the cave and you show him reality where there is no shadows, where it's all just light and freedom and openness. And you allow them just to exist in that. And then you allow them to wake up and then you put them back in the cave 
And despite them having all of this extra knowledge and all this extra clarity and, and honest to God, good things to tell everybody that they've existed with, all they get is judged by the other people because they no longer are paying attention to the shadows on the wall. That's the problem, right? Is that we're trying to say there's a whole world out there, but people are so busy looking at the shadows because that's what they think keeps them safe. Super powerful. And I think that because, because of the society we created, right, where we're so like, I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. I'm going to sound like I'm, you know, I'm going against everything that I believe in, but like we've created a society, a society in which we're so driven by money and everything that we do, every decision that we make revolves around money um, that we can't even get ourselves to look in a different direction, right? Because it almost seems counterintuitive, right? Like if I'm just going to do things that I, if I'm only going to follow the things that I'm, I'm thinking about every single day in my head, well, there's no... There's, no one's going to pay me a salary to do that, right? So why would I go do that? That doesn't make any sense. It's it's completely counterintuitive. So I think that people are just so conditioned and and so tied to this um, reality that we've created with our system that it's so hard for us to go against that and and question these things that we're so conditioned and trained to believe. And how else would we perceive our value if not based on how much money and shit we have relative to everyone else? And, you know, that's just rooted in the confusion that you are what you think you are. That's that's conceptual. That idea that, you know, I am more because I'm wealthier or I am more because I am dating this person or I am more because I have this size house. It's like that's still... Mm -hmm. In, in concepts, that's that's the idea. That's that's the reinforcement. But you recognize you're nothing more and nothing less than what you embody in this moment right now. All you are is the awareness this moment right now. And in that, that's beyond the identity, beyond the personality, beyond all of those conceptual illusions that we cling to for a false sense of certainty. Beyond that, there are no bounds to what you are. And that is when you begin to step out of the cave in the analogy that Ray just mentioned, and, and you start to see things for what they are. But as long as you cling to all of those false senses of certainty, all of those ideals that you cling to, to derive your value from, or, or the perception of your value from, you'll always be limited. You will always be limited to the confines of what you think reality is, as opposed to the reality of what it is. But you know, we, we avoid uncertainty like the fucking plague. It's unbelievable and so people when it comes to any of those things any of those ideas any of those concepts that we've been talking about how it's fascinating that people you know always cling to them like we would rather cling to a false as sense of certainty about what we think we are even if it's a negative idea of what we think we are because we feel safer in that we feel more comfortable having a negative idea of ourselves than not knowing because uncertainty is the scariest thing in the entire world but it's also the reality of the world so it's fascinating how afraid of it we are when it's our reality so as you begin to relax into that things get that uncertainty becomes your comfort and then you don't feel the need to cling to all of those false senses of certainty anymore so it's all process it's all 
practice. It's all recognizing it, going back and forth, getting caught up in the illusion, recognizing that it's an illusion, coming back to reality, coming back to this moment. It's all just a back and forth and, and it's all cumulative and you're always making progress. So, you know, do your best as Ray always says, do your best not to judge yourself along the way because you're always making that progress. Even when it feels like you're not, you, you still are and just keep moving forward. That's all you ever have to do. Well said. That reminds me a lot of, um, and I just wanted to give a quick shout out of, of Stephen Pressfield's book, Resistance, because this this resistance is something that we're creating in our own minds because we are so fucking scared of uncertainty, <laughs> right? Although uncertainty is literally every fucking thing that every next step that we might take comes with some level of uncertainty. And there's no way around it. That's, that's the point. Like we try, we try to get around it. And what's funny about this is that we're not the first person, like the first people to have this conversation. This is the basis of most religions or most, most religious practices. It's just that it got distorted by our need for certainty, right? Like we were talking about faith. Instead, we made it faith in God, which is a fiction. So not faith, right? Now we have that sense of control again. If I just pray enough and do what it says, we're going to be okay. That's not faith. That's the opposite of faith. Faith is just continuing on. That's all they were talking about, right? It's all they were trying to say is be in the world, be here, right? And that's where you can make the most of your reality. And that's that's the kingdom of heaven is when you're not afraid of the uncertainty because you're a part of it, right? It, it's, you're just aligned with it. It's It really is our resistance to it that makes it harder for us to make the most of it. That's the one thing, like, as much as I, I it's funny because, now I don't think about things very often. I, for the most part, I just go day to day and life just carries on. And, and I try not to, to get my opinion in the way of anything, regardless of how it goes. If something goes, you know, quote unquote, badly, I assume it's going to lead to something else eventually. And it always does. But at one, once upon a time, that wasn't the case. Once upon a time, I wanted to, to cling and, and hold on to this idea that I knew what was happening. And the only reason wasn't because it made me feel better. It's because I didn't have any faith in myself. Right? That was the only reason is because I felt that by thinking I knew what was coming, I wouldn't have to dance on in the moment. I wouldn't have to adapt on the fly as it was happening. But that's always the case. We always have to uh, dance on the fly. We always have to be in the moment as it's happening. It's kind of like um, going to a job interview where you've prepared what answers you're going to have. And then they ask you a question you didn't prepare for and you just freeze. Right. As opposed to just going in and talking to another human being without preparing. And just being yourself it's an entirely different outcome right and it's it's funny because the outcome is always better when you get out of the way yeah yeah and it's 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 so funny that you say that because i feel like we always use this phrase trial by fire right just throw somebody into the water and they'll they'll figure out a way to swim but it's so true like it's so true for everything that we do right it's not just for it's not just for you know your career or your job whatever like it is true for every single facet of your life like if you throw yourself in and just embrace that uncertainty and stop letting the resistance control you you are going to figure a way out of it right and it's having that faith, having that confidence, having that belief, having that um, level of self-esteem in yourself to to take that initial leap and just dive right into the uncertainty. That's the powerful part. Yeah. Be willing to fail. Something yeah. I, I, we said in one of our earlier episodes was, you know, if, it, if it's worth doing, it's worth fucking up. Right? Like, fall. The only thing you're going to learn is that you can get, your, you can get back up. 
right? Fail. The only thing you're going to learn is that you can learn from failing and that, that it leads to a success, right? It's all just perception. Just keep going. Guys, I wanted to get your perspectives on um, a concept that I honestly, like growing up every time that I would read something about stoicism, I would just be like, all right, well, this is, this might've been cool, you know, 800 years ago when this dude randomly first talked about it. But like, this is not practical advice for today's day and age. Like if somebody's being an asshole on the highway, like I'm going to react, right? Like I'm, I'm, there's going to be some kind of reaction inside me, but the older I get and the more I start to really understand some of these topics that we're, that we're talking about and some of this philosophy that people have been pondering for years and years and years, the more I can start to appreciate the idea of stoicism. So, um, you know, before we kind of dive into a discussion here, why don't one of you just explain what stoicism is? Uh, I'll summarize as best I can. I like stoicism because it's, it's common sense. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really a level of responsibility that they're talking about, that it, the buck stops with me, right? It's how I react to this that's going to indicate how it goes from here. It's not what's happening necessarily. And so that that's really the core of it. I mean, it, it was never meant to be anything spiritual so much as it kind of like the Tao Te Ching, right? In the same way that it's just, this is kind of how things work. This is how they work when you're confused. And that's pretty much it. And it was always just meant to be that, it, it be common sense in that way. So I resonate with it a lot because things should be straightforward, right? And they shouldn't be uh, complicated to the point of involving fictional deities and all this other stuff. Like it really just comes back down to what ripples that we create, right? So stoicism to me is kind of like the difference between um, wanting to be respected versus being just respectable, right? Like thinking about yourself versus being yourself, however people want to see you, right? And that's what they see. They see somebody who's being authentic. They see somebody who's themselves. And I, I think that's very much the difference between the philosophy of Stoicism and the practice of Stoicism. Yeah, and along those lines, I mean, related to Stoicism, like something I always try and keep in mind is, is that resistance is always going to lead to suffering and acceptance is always going to lead to peace. No matter the situation, no matter what you're going through, there's always the, the reality of your experience and your opinion about it, but your opinion about it doesn't change it. And it actually makes it more difficult to change because you're existing in the conceptual, in the cerebral, and you're not existing in the reality of the experience because you're, you haven't accepted that it is the reality of experience. It's like, you know, when it's, when it's raining outside and, and you wish it wasn't raining, like you're not going to stop the rain. It's going to be raining. So, you know, you might as well accept it. You might as well make the most of it. But if you want to, you, you don't have to also, you can resist it. You can't be like, Oh shit, I want to do this. And uh, now I can't, now I have to stay inside or now I have to do this thing. And it's like, you can do that. No one's going to stop you. Like no one is ever going to stop you from causing your own suffering, but no one ever is going to let it go for you either. Like it has to come from you. And that's not always an easy pill to swallow that we are always, when it comes to psychological suffering, creating it within ourselves. and no one's ever going to force us to stop and no one's going to let it go for us. So it's always the reality of what is and our our thoughts about the way we wish it were or the way we think it should be 
And as long as we don't accept and just resist and wish it were another way or think it should be another way or, or fear that it might be another way, we're not actually able to have that influence in the moment. As long as you're caught up in the cerebral thoughts about how you think it should be or the way you think it is, you're not going to be able to have that influence that we alluded to earlier that's only available to you here and now because you're caught up in wishing that you had control and hoping that you have control and you never ever do and we see it over and over and over and over it happens all the time like like hundreds of times a day for most people we judge the situation that we're in we think it's bad we think it's good we wish that it was different it doesn't change anything and it the only thing it does is keep you out of the ability to have influence over it, which only comes after you accept the reality that you're experiencing. So, I mean, it's, it's along the lines of stoicism. You can, you can label it as that, but it really just comes down to acceptance versus resistance and, and the way things are recognizing that they're always the way things are. And, and as long as you resist that, you'll only add to your own suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love the topic of stoicism, especially because of our previous conversation, right? Because I feel like it just ties so, so neatly back into the whole idea of uncertainty, right? Because it's not the uncertainty, like uncertainty alone is not the issue. It's the resistance that we create in our mind to that uncertainty that becomes the issue, right? And that's literally what stoicism is. It It's not, you can't change it. You don't have control over it. It just is. So deal with it. Yeah, exactly. And then the process of doing that is what reveals, as we were saying earlier, our true values, right? As opposed to memorized values. It's just digging away until we find ourselves and we're exposed to the world like a nerve, right? That's when we have that sensitivity to go, that doesn't feel right. Or I, can, I can't rationalize that against my, my state of being because I'm trying to get somewhere and distracting myself, right? So mm -hmm. it really is about being vulnerable enough as yourself to, to determine you know, what your sensitivity really is telling you. I mean, that's what, like, what we were saying about empathy as well. That's just sensitivity to what's happening. But we often get caught up in the idea of ourselves to the point where we can't hear each other. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, let he who has ears to hear, hear. Before he was telling any of his parables, it's like, I know some of you aren't listening, right? You're trying to, to wear this like a coat, right? Which is unfortunately how we ended up with Christianity. That's funny how that works out. Guys, where does envy come from? That's that's a good question. Uh, Fred, you have a, Unrelated. You have a... There wasn't there wasn't a clear segue there, but <laughs> something I had to ask. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it. I mean, it's rooted in you know confusion of identity, like almost everything in our society, and and the idea that we are what we think we are, and that our value is derived from the idea that we cling to in order to define ourselves, And so when we see someone with something and we wished we had it because we perceive that their value is higher because they have it and our value is lower because we don't have it, we want that thing. We want what they have, whether it's, could be anything, money, wealth, happiness, power, like any, any like conceptual idea of what you think they have. And I think the important thing to recognize is, is that the truth of it is you never actually know what their reality is like to them. You know, mm -hmm. like on paper, it could seem like they're the happiest person in the world. And the funny thing is that most of the time, 
I mean, it's not that funny, but like most of the time, those people that seem outwardly like they have it all figured out and they're doing really well are the ones that are internally suffering the worst because they're trying to put on a face, especially in the age of social media, recognizing that, you know, people have the opportunity to curate what people see. And everyone's trying to put on this face. Everyone's trying to wear this mask and and put on this facade that they are happy as opposed to just being happy that they're having a ton of fun as opposed to just having fun. They're trying to put on this show for other people to see. And, and it leads to things like envy. But if you can recognize that you have no idea, like it comes back to early in the episode, we were talking about just three words. I don't know. I don't know what that person's reality is actually like. I don't know what their day to day is actually like. I don't know what happens behind closed doors. I don't know if their family actually loves each other or they just act like they love each other so people don't ask questions, you know? Like you never actually know what someone's experiencing. So I think envy is rooted in the confusion that you do and and you never do. So as you can realize that and sort of relax into just those three simple words of I don't know, it, it gets more difficult to not only feel en envy, but also judge someone or, or really any of those comparison based sort of emotions. That was awesome. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of like, it's the same with all of the seven deadly sins, right? There, it's always the result of overcommitment to our ego. It's always the result of overcommitment to the perception of lack and the perception of division, right? So with envy, if I feel like I'm not good enough and I think that other things will make me better, then I'm not going to have the ability to make the most of where I am. And so I'm always going to look at other people and assume that they're happier than I am. Right? because I can't make the most of where I am, but it's always assumptions. And the problem is, is that it's always assumptions based on the idea that that person is separate and has a different experience than I do. Like I've met so many people who are, are rich and wealthy and they still go through doubt. They still sit up at night, unable to sleep. They still suffer through the same stuff as everybody else, right? And somebody who's envious won't see that. What they'll see is what they don't have and the promise of happiness. And therefore, if I think that's gonna make me happy, it must be making them happy, and therefore I want what they have. And that's the problem, right? Whereas they are me. They have that thing, that's me having that thing. And it doesn't matter because I'm still in the same mess of either identifying or not, it doesn't matter. The problem is, is that when you have extra stuff, when you have that money, when you have all that control and you're still unhappy, it's almost harder to reconcile that. It's almost harder to, to come to terms with where that unhappiness is coming from because you can always distract yourself. You can always try and chase one more carrot, right? And, and it's difficult that way. But yeah, I would say that all of the sins come from our overcommitment to the ego, which is why I like the etymology of sin, which I can't remember the exact word or the pronunciation at right now, but it's to miss the mark or to miss the point, right? Getting lost in the perception of division, we miss what this is all about. We miss the ability to empathize with the person who doesn't have what we have, to celebrate their success, right? And to find our own in that feeling of celebration and enthusiasm, right? So we just get caught at the bottom of this deep, dark hole. And then everything that we see is deep and dark. So interesting because I think that something that ties this whole discussion of envy back for me, I don't know if you guys follow Naval at all. I've seen a little bit of his stuff here and there. Yeah. I've, I've kind of um, really delved into a lot of Naval's stuff over the past few years. And like something that he talks about as it relates to envy is how 
we can conquer our envy by just realizing that you don't you, you don't have to be envious of anybody because envy would mean that you have to accept their entire every single circumstance of their life as it is right and ray as you were just saying the person can be wealthy but there are still things that keep them up at night regards to familial happiness or stress or whatever the case might be you being envious is basically implying that you want to be that person and you want to accept all those things that come along with with that envy right you can't only have the bank account right you need everything that comes along with that bank account and there's so many things that we don't recognize behind the scenes in this world of social media that we only see the highlights and and the best facets of their lives of right so it's really interesting that you say that envy comes of comes from a place where we are having a difficult time recon, reconciling our own identity and confusing what it is that we are our perception of reality i think it all as everybody that's listening can understand it all ties back to itself it's 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 really cyclical in that way yeah yeah it's it's fascinating how interconnected all this is and it really just comes back to identity like it what we think we are and the confusion that we are what we think we are like it all ties back to that idea to the conceptual illusions that we cling to for a false sense of certainty not realizing that they're reinforcing the exact thing that's causing us suffering and so yeah it's it's interesting it's interesting to see it too and when you talk about it and people continue to defend it and i was going back and forth to someone uh the other day about um i made a video about how shame and guilt aren't necessary because all they do is reinforce your idea of yourself to yourself but you can't change while clinging to that idea of yourself because change only happens now it doesn't happen you know in the future so as long as you're clinging to that idea as long as you're feeling shame and clinging to that idea and bringing that idea with you into every single moment you won't be able to change because you're only reinforcing to yourself that you are that person that did that shameful act. So until you let it go, sure you can change, but you have to let it go. And in order to let it go, you have to stop feeling so shameful and guilty. So people think that like, oh, you, you know, that person did this horrendous act, like they should feel shame and guilt. It's like, why do you keep talking about that person? Let's talk about you because that's all you know. You don't know their reality. Let's talk about your reality. You feel shame and guilt time and time again. How has that helped you change and and evolve? It's like, well, I you know, I guess it hasn't. It's like, okay, let's let's stay there for a little bit. But I had someone comment on Instagram saying how like, you know, this can be uh harmful. I, I forget the exact words, but it was something along the lines of how this can be harmful for people who have experienced trauma, like you're victim blaming, you're telling them that they if they keep feeling shameful and guilty like they're doing a bad thing and and they they just need to think themselves out of it and it's like whoa 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 <laughs> i never said anything about thinking yourself out of it the the idea of yourself is a thought is a concept i'm talking about letting go of the thoughts i'm talking about letting go of the ideas that you cling to to define yourself for a false sense of certainty i'm saying you don't have to feel shameful and guilty i'm not saying that you shouldn't or you're a bad person if you do i'm just saying that if you ever want to change you have to be able to let go you can't do both at the same time and then i asked genuinely 
do you have any practices that you've seen that have worked better than this? And they never responded, which is usually how it goes. But um, yeah, so I, I don't even remember where that started, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my wife is a counselor and it's really important to remember how far we have to go because our society is really based on this old world mentality on this idea of control and separation and division and, and religion and, and all of that stuff. And so my wife and I, we talk about this all the time. And what we're saying is that we have the power to change our lives, right? But we're talking to people who take anything you say as self-defining. Like, it'd be like if you walked up to somebody who was feeling egotistical and you said, you know, do you like my new shoes? And their immediate thought is, well, what's wrong with my shoes? I didn't say a thing about your shoes, but everything is self-reflective. Everything is meaning something about me. And so you can't get through to that person, right? Well, psychology is built around those people for the most part. And so my wife and I, we marvel at this because everything she's ever learned was to never put it on the person. It's never on them. It's always on what's happened to them. It's always on their trauma. It's always on their family. It's always on their lineage. It's on their situation. It's always that. Whereas this perspective is, is the buck stops here. The buck stops with me, right? And so we laugh from time to time at how far even psychology has to go before it can come to terms with the idea of responsibility, right? Which, because we can't separate responsibility from blame. That's the problem. We can't go, I made a mistake without going, and that makes me a bag of shit, right? Whereas if we just go, oh, I could have done that better, or oh, I've learned something, and just carry on, totally different conversation, right? But that's where trauma really gets us, right? Trauma isn't what happened to us, it's the response we learned from what happened to us. It's how we identify with that response, what we've attached to, right? And so working through that is letting go of the idea of ourself. That's all it is. But people will automatically go, oh, so you just want me to tell myself a pleasant story. It's like, no, 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 no. That's what you've been doing, right? You've been telling yourself a story this whole time, right? It's when you let go of the story that you'll be able to actually feel yourself change. Yeah, and that's... That's the interesting and, and tricky part of this whole thing, right? It's so it's 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 so powerful on one hand, but it's so tricky on the other because we back to our conditioning, like it's so difficult for us to take responsibility and hold accountability for the things that happen to us, for the conscious decisions that we make, that we've become so accustomed to chalking it up to an external factor or because we work in large organizations, we can share the collective blame. I don't even know if the blame is the right word for it, but we can share the collective kind of um, accountability for it, right? Because we don't have to take anything personally. We don't have to claim that this was a result of our own doing. And that's what makes this whole concept so tricky for people to come around to is because they don't want to accept that reality. They don't want to accept that this was their own making. Right. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's, I'm really glad that you guys said that because I think that's, I think that's a really good way for everybody to kind of start to understand this stuff without kind of dismissing it at first. Right. Because we're not taught to take accountability 
in today's day and age. And we don't often take accountability for anything, right? Because we always chalk it up to circumstance or X, Y, and Z factor. And I think that's a really good way to get everybody kind of thinking about asking themselves these deeper questions in the first place, right? If they can start to start to realize that life is really a single, single player game and you don't need to be envious of anybody else or you don't need to be um, assigning your your guilt or blaming anybody else for what happens to you because it is ultimately a result of your own doing. Perfectly said. This was a amazing conversation. I'll even you know go out on a limb here to say this was the best one I've ever had just because it was so kind of mind-boggling and thought-provoking. And I feel like we could just keep going here, but I want to be really respectful of your time. I know that we've only got like 90 minutes or so. So, um, you know, before I ask you guys to figure out what the meaning of life is, um, where can people find you guys online and how can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, first of all, Dualistic Unity podcast that Ray and I host. And we got 36 episodes now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And a bunch of other round tables and, and whatnot. So yeah, if you've enjoyed this conversation, we, we get even deeper there. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's always a lot of fun, but aside from the podcast, uh, for myself, uh, TikTok, uh, not Andrew Murnane, Instagram, a dot Murnane and, uh, yeah. And then, uh, Twitter, Andrew underscore Murnane. Um, but, yeah, if you if you find one of those, you'll my bio has has all the other stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely just look up dualisticunity.com for me. You can find me on TikTok under transcending me. My my videos are uh, random and 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 kind of short and sometimes I only find them funny, but you know, if you want to hear uh, my sense of humor, that's a good place to go, but if you want to hear the long version of these conversations as we've had in this in this episode here, definitely check out the podcast. Uh, we also do workshops and whatnot. We also do groups four or five times a month on our Patreon page. Uh, and I'd, I'd just like to mention quickly that I actually have a video on YouTube that's 48 minutes that uh, kind of goes through three of the habits that we, we tend to fall victim to uh, consciously. So if anybody would like to check that out, it's called Discover Transcendence. It's 48 minutes long, five parts. Uh, it's very dense. There's a lot in there. So I suggest taking it in pieces, but it, it's, it's a good free way to kind of just get familiar with how easy it is to identify or fall into habit or fall in, uh, fall prey to cognitive dissonance. So I think they'll probably enjoy that. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Definitely check out discover transcendence. I actually keep it linked in my bio cause I like it so much. Um, I've, I've watched it like five times, I think. And it's like, yeah, if, if you got anything out of this, like Discover Transcendence is is an awesome place to start with these things, along with Dualistic Unity. Awesome. I will certainly link to all of those things. And and guys, before we go here, I just want to say that for everybody listening, these guys are the real deal. Like you guys strike me as kind of the epitome of authenticity, right? Where where everybody's always like, Oh, just be yourself and be authentic and do what you do what you really like. You guys are doing all of that stuff. Like you guys certainly practice what you preach, but you know, you can, the energy almost just feels different from just even having a conversation with you guys. So I'm, you know, thankful, grateful that you guys decided to come on and um, would love to have you back in the future. And uh, for everybody listening, please check out Dualistic Unity. You won't regret it. These are the questions that you need to be asking yourself. 
And I just want to say again, thank you. We really appreciate you having us on. This has been a fantastic conversation. I would say the same thing about you, that your authenticity comes through for sure. And I guess we're going to have to have you come by on the podcast. I love it. I would be more than happy to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, I, I appreciate your willingness to question and and prod and, and try to learn more about what the hell we're talking about, because sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense and people aren't willing to necessarily try and find out what we're, we're actually saying. Um, so, yeah, I think I think you're an awesome mirror for this conversation, which I think the best thing that a, a podcast host could be. So I really appreciate um, you having us on today. And I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome, guys. Well, the feelings are mutual and uh, we will chat again soon.